This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 260 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I have already seen way too much Miranda Hobbs. Remind me who Miranda Hobbs is. She is a character in initially Sex and the City and now in the sequel, spin-off. I guess it's not a spin-off because it's all the same people and just like that. I know who Miranda is. The Hobbs bit confused me. Full name because I'm disappointed with that. (laughs) (laughs) Too much screen time, too much body, just too much. In the Brian Saul way, it's too much. I feel gynecologically intimate with her now, with Cynthia Nixon, in a way that I had no desire or need to be. It's an interesting dilemma because I kind of understand. I've only watched the first 20 minutes of the first episode as well. And then I was like, blimey. But I've seen Charlotte's tits. I've seen Miranda's tits. I've seen more than her tits. I get that it maybe feels empowering to have these women in their 50s, these actors in their 50s, just their bodies. But mm, who is this for? Are they in any way representative of ordinary 50-year-old tits? I would say Cynthia Nixon's, yes. Fair dues. Although she was also in a flotation tank, so they were getting a little bit of help from some water. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> mental note <laughs> actually I don't know why I'm saying that because my tits are great they Just are great they're great and we see them every time we record she always does this fully nude from the waist up I nearly did it in my dressing gown because I bought a new one this is terribly dull but here we go I love it so much I actually resent having to take it off <laughs> but it's actually quite hot today so I wasn't able to wear it but back to Miranda's boobs Am I bad to think that I don't want to see that or I don't need to see that? It's not adding anything to the storyline. Would you want to see Bullsack? As long as you're replying your I don't really want to see it equally, I think that's fair enough. Would you want to see Young Tits? It just feels gratuitous. It doesn't feel like it's adding anything to the the storyline. There's a whole scene, spoilers if you've not seen it, where she's trying to work out how to put on a strap on and she's got the harness on and stuff. And I'm like, you know, fine. But it's just extended this sort of footage of this woman who I know quite well, I guess, because I was such a big Sex in the City fan. Just stood there kind of in the background in a harness for no reason. And I, I just, I don't know, I just found it a bit unnecessary. Maybe I've become an absolute prude, but I don't think so. The good news is I will never find out. <laughs> it's fair enough. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, the mother at the weekend, and I taught her to use... What's that? Were you wearing your dressing gown at the time? No, I wasn't actually. It was very hot this weekend. Really very hot. True story. I was really surprised in that she actually appeared to get it. But I put this on Twitter. I'm not sure she actually gets it, putting it in buddy ears. Because I sent her a message. I took her home yesterday and then I sent her a message because the best way to teach my mum anything is to make her do it regularly. Well, same with most of us, I think. Yeah, and I sent her a message and she uh, phoned me back. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know how to send a message. Oh, I do, but I just thought I'd ring. Okay. And so have you introduced another platform for your mum to contact you because you want more text messages and less phone calls? Text messages. <laughs> she forgets to press send on those, so I never actually get any of them. All her 60 and 70-year-old friends are all laughing at memes in WhatsApp groups and Mary's left out. Making so, their own gifts. Yeah, I thought it would help her keep in touch with people. We have a family WhatsApp group. She can't join in that. I mean, she's going to realise when she finally breaks into all these WhatsApp groups that what we're talking about is all quite boring. It's because she has technological FOMO, basically. Well, I feel like you took one for the family team there. You're a nice person, Hannah Dunleavy. Yeah. Coming up. Jen chats to Kate Stonehill, director of a new feature documentary, Phantom Parrot, about draconian laws, data security, and what the hell a parrot has to do with any of this. I'm excited to find out. No idea. Yeah, I don't even know. I'm reading this out. and <laughs> No idea. I've given it a bit of oomph. I hope it, it pans out. I think it'll pan out. I think it'll pan out. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I chat to Tat FB, a woman with a dry sense of humour and moist sense of cake who's taking TikTok and Instagram by sweet, sweet, delicious storm as the cake tunist. And in Rated or Dated, we suggest how we might resolve the staging difficulties inherent in a production of Ibsen's Pierkin as we watch 1983's Educating Rita. But first, we've got to fight for our right to the future. Time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. A tenor on Musk. It's Mickey here, flying solo in this week's BT. I'm wondering, will the self-proposed cage fight between tech bro titans Mark Zuckerberg in one corner and Elon Musk in the other actually take place? I don't know, but here's hoping, because what the actual? Oh, I'm so pleased the future of the human race relies heavily on these two mega-rich, middle-aged man-babies. Can you even imagine two wealthy women suggesting such a thing? No, mate. No. Anyway, given that Zuckerberg seems genuinely incapable of lols, this this could actually be on the table? It could actually be on the map? A little WhatsApp chat with the standard issue birds revealed that even though Zucks is well into his Brazilian jiu-jitsu, all of us, all of us to a woman, would put our cash on the musk man. Not least because he boasts a special move he likes to call the walrus, where he just lies on his opponent and does nothing. I mean, he's got six inches and 15 kilos on Zuck, so it could be a winning tactic. Sit on it until it's dead certainly appears to be what he's doing with Twitter. Not that MZ isn't a slippery little fucker. Just look how he's consistently wriggled out of doing anything to stop Facebook, sorry, Meta, being a fake news hellscape having a ruinous impact on the world's youth. Two congressional hearings and still the world's most powerful millennial. All of this means... I reckon the fight could be pretty tasty, right? Neither of them are big fans of rules or regulations. I mean, certainly not when it comes to protecting their billions by harvesting our data, then selling our souls. So I am guessing, should this actually happen, it might be to the death or perhaps even to the pain. That reference is there for my fellow Princess Broadpunch. You're welcome. When it comes to the world's tech bros, and they are invariably tech bros, I'm becoming more and more fascinated in a kind of the horror, the horror way. It was lit by my chat with Susie Madigan a few weeks ago about the future of and with AI and AGI and further fueled by Jeanette Winterson's 12 Bites, an eye-opening and insightful series of essays exploring how artificial intelligence or alternative intelligence, as Winterson calls it, 
will change is changing the way we live and love. Is it my new Susan Faludi's backlash? No, I remain a Faludi stan account. Please read it if you haven't. But Winterson also looks at her subject, our possible, probable futures, through a feminist and humanist lens, which makes it even more appealing. Because if women from all walks of life and all corners of the world don't have a seat at the table, the future is not female. And despite a history rich with female scientists, visionaries, code breakers and code makers, women really don't have a seat at this table. And so currently, the future is two of the world's wealthiest, most powerful men who are even now successfully land-grabbing outer space and our inner lives, challenging each other to a fucking cage fight. And sure, it's a cage fight that probably won't take place, but I can't really think of a more stereotypically macho event. And if you want more on what were the billionaires thinking, Hannah's got you covered in this week's mail out. Aw, Hannah doesn't leave you the Bush Telegram. What a treat. In other news, fucking hell, it really is dire. Mortgages are rising. HRMC has fined 184,000 low earners for not filing tax returns, even though they didn't owe any tax. Turns out the new Brexit borders, i.e. import checks, are pushing the price of food even higher. Who'd have thought it? And Prime Minister Rishi Sunak used a lot of words to say very little about public sector pay and conditions and what the government plans to do about them. Which, given Sunak kind of looks like he's saying he's just going to ignore recommendations for pay rises, appears to be less than very little. And finally, it's goodbye, goodbye England's rose. As Elton John's Sunday night headline set at Glastonbury marks the end of the pop legend's yellow brick tour road. Some people might be thinking, is this the good news bit of BT? But not me, or indeed the record 7.6 million people who tuned in to watch his set on BBC One. Love a bit of Elton. Also, he provides one of my very favourite misheard lyrics. Hold me close and tie me down, sir. Monus, next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when... Hang on, I'm going to start that again. It's that time of the 2023 when a woman in the UK was denied a pay rise because her husband earns a large salary. Sweet mother of God. Now, this week's slice of sexism does come with the good news that Ping Zhang won a discrimination case against managers at James Durans & Sons, a metal products and brake linings company in Sheffield, after a tribunal ruled that it was wrong for her boss to maintain that her household income was, quote, more than enough. But it also came out that Zhang's boss at the company thought that, and I quote, a married woman cannot challenge her salary if her husband is a high earner. And then he added he didn't understand why Zhang said that the comment about the combined household income was sexist. <sighs> no hope in dishing out equality for that fucker. Obviously, I am well chuffed that Ping Zhang won her tribunal. But seriously, sad times for the other female employees at James Durant and Sons. And also sad times for female models of a certain age. Oh yeah, we're having a double dollop of sexism of the week. Pre-COVID, it was becoming, if not the norm, then certainly more normal to see older women in a variety of brand campaigns and hooray for that. But now it seems we're back to young, skinny and tall being the go-to request for models because that's how brands like to play it safe. Which seems, well, odd given the older demographic is growing 
And with the massive caveat that the majority of people are feeling the squeeze right now, have the most spending power. But several agencies specialising in older female models have told The Guardian how bookings have dropped dramatically post-COVID. Demand for older male models has stayed strong, if you're wondering. You, you weren't wondering, were you? You'd already guessed that, right? Mm. I'm joined by Kate Stonehill, director of the new feature documentary Phantom Parrots. Hello, Kate. Hi, Jen. Thanks very much for joining me today. Phantom Parrot is a kind of intriguing name and also seemingly not exactly what you would expect the documentary in terms of in terms of content and themes. So can you tell us a little bit about Phantom Parrot, please? Sure. So the first spoiler is that it doesn't have parrots in it. <laughs> so yeah, so so Phantom Parrot is a is a documentary that follows a human rights activist who is prosecuted under UK terror laws for refusing to hand over the passwords to his electronic devices. And while reporting on his case, a journalist, an investigative journalist, publishes a document from the Snowden archive, which outlines a secret UK government data gathering programme codenamed Phantom Parrot. So that's where the name comes from. So Phantom Parrot refers to a secret UK government programme in which people are stopped at the border and their devices are secretly copied using technologies known as mobile device forensic tools. So they're basically these technologies that allow someone to take your phone, plug it in and then extract all the data on the phone. So broadly speaking, the film is about digital privacy and it unravels this secret surveillance program. And also, I should say, specifically looks at how a law that was passed seven years before the invention of the first iPhone uh, is now being used as a matter of secret policy to collect people's data. So the act that enables all of this, so Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000, so like full disclosure, my best friend edited this film, Vera Simmons, her legend, and I was talking to her about it while you guys were sort of making the film. She was trying to locate a bit of footage of, of what was going on in Parliament and she was talking to me about it. And my question to her at the time, while you guys were working on this, was why then like why that time it kind of feels weird to me like we're talking pre 9-11 probably a good while before 9-11 as well because you know these things take a while to go through parliament post good friday agreement did you think about like what what the rationale behind it was you know did you ever think maybe there were slightly clandestine or nefarious aims behind what they were doing with this because they're very wide-ranging powers aren't they yeah. So, I mean, I think I had the same questions as you and a lot of people assume that it would have been post 9-11. So I, I looked into it and what I found was that you had a lot of emergency legislation being passed around the troubles. Mm. It was often temporary legislation. And then this was a period of, of relative peacetime. So the idea behind the passage of the Terrorism Act at this moment in time was to consolidate all this legislation that had been passed in a kind of reactive way and say, okay, now is a time when we don't have to be reactive. And so now is actually a good time to kind of sit and, and consolidate all these bits of legislation into what became the Terrorism Act. So it's it's ironic in a way, because I think the that there was a lot of 
conversation around the importance of uh, civil liberties. And that was what I found so fascinating about the archive. In the film, we've got excerpts of the debate of the terrorism bill, which then was passed. And so much of what interests me in the story is 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 how these politicians were trying to kind of foreshadow abuses that could come but with the with the rapid acceleration of technology you know maybe things have happened that they just could not have foreseen and so we find ourselves in a place today where these laws have been abused they have not kept up with the technologies and that's kind of what's happened over 20 years so the the original context it's super fascinating it's funny we were talking about this on the podcast last week as people listen to this about how we've built this kind of thing in the super brain in the internet and we just like we can't keep up with it as human beings it's impossible to keep up with it and so yeah all of the kind of unintended consequences of of the use of this i guess you know maybe they couldn't be foreseen so the story of of the case that the the, the film follows, Mohammed Rabani, who, as you say, is a, a human rights activist. So basically, he's looking after a guy who has been detained and he says tortured in America, and he's coming to he's coming to the UK. So Rabani is stopped. He's asked to hand over his his devices, and he does. He complies, and he's asked to give his password to the devices and he knows that he has information concerning the guy who he's helping that he would not want to fall into the wrong hands under schedule seven he is legally obligated to provide those passwords and if he doesn't he has committed a crime in not doing so and so what happens to this guy who like the court case the judge rules in the end sorry spoiler alert i think you're a guy of good character I'm not concerned about you. I don't actually think you're a terrorist. And yet you have committed an act of terrorism in the eyes of the law. And so I have to find you guilty. And so this guy now is forever tarred with this brush of this crime that I presume he has to declare in in all sorts of situations. Like, that's mad, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's that's what this law has done is it's created a very precarious situation where when you are passing through UK ports and borders, you do not have the right to remain silent. And I think for a lot of people, that's something that they assume that they would have. And the law doesn't specifically say anything about passwords, but what what it does say is that if you're asked a question, you have to respond. So now that's being interpreted as, well, if you didn't respond to the question what's your password, you've committed an offence. Well, can the response not be, I'm not going to give it to you? <laughs> that's a response, right? That's not like no comment. That's that's a response. You are not complying, I guess, with what is being asked of you. So that's how, you know, it's being interpreted. But I guess I would add to that, that we're seeing that law being used strategically, mm. right? So, you know, there one thing we know from the Phantom Parrot document is that some people are randomly stopped, they're Mm -hmm. profiled, and other people are targeted. And in the case of this activist, they acknowledged in court that it was a targeted stop. And there's another case that's been in the headlines recently, which is the case of a French publisher, Ernest Moray, who was on his way to the London Book Fair. And he was stopped when he arrived and asked for his passwords. He didn't give them. 
he was arrested and he was asked about his views on the French president. He was asked a number mm. of things. And so there's a question around, was he stopped because he works for a left-wing publisher? He was asked if his employer is critical of the government. And so for me, this paints a really sinister picture of what do we lose when we're losing the right to criticise the government? Isn't that something that's really important? As you say, that's pretty mad to be facing a, a terrorism offence for your role in criticising the government. I think with all of these laws that were passed, because there was this kind of like panic around terrorism post 9-11, there were, you know, there were sort of these famous scenes of MPs sleeping in the halls of the Commons to vote on the, because they were very controversial at the time. And I remember them after the 7-7 bombings in the UK. And I remember feeling very much like, well, I'm not a terrorist, so, you know, who cares? And I have always kind of had a pretty laissez-faire attitude about this kind of thing. Well, I know I'm not up to no good, so does it really matter? And one of the things that I remember about coming out of lockdown, for example, if you want to sort of relate this specifically to surveillance, is that... I remember thinking, because you had to sort of subscribe to various things, you had to give your details simply to be in a public space, right? If you wanted to go to the pub, you had to sign up to an app in order to get your drinks delivered to you and you had to tell people where you were and blah, 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 and all of this stuff. And it did occur to me at the time, someone somewhere is benefiting from this data. How worried do you think we should be about the use of our data if we are just kind of like regular people in everyday life? not necessarily doing anything untoward? I, I think it's a really good question. And I think that, you know, something that has really influenced my thinking around that question is some of Edward Snowden's writings on privacy. I read his book and one of the things that he says is, the thing is privacy is a right. So either all of us have it or none of us have it. And I think that's a really important way of thinking about privacy. So we have to ask ourselves as a society what kind of society we want to be and so the right to privacy isn't necessarily about whether or not you specifically have something at this particular moment in time that you don't want someone to have it's about building an awareness of the ways in which power can and will be abused and, you know, we we have examples of that. So I think it requires a leap. And, but I think that thinking in that way is really important in an age when technologies are evolving so rapidly. And I mean, the other thing I would just add to that is I think that we should be deciding what the limits are. We should be deciding what we want our civil liberties to look like. It shouldn't be that the technologies are setting those boundaries for us. And I think you see this now with like the debate around AI, you know, mm -hmm. we have to kind of have these debates. And, and that was really why I made the film was to kind of put this to people and, and ask them, is this the kind of society we want to live in? Do we want to live? And, and what are the dangers as well? To ask people, what are the dangers of living in a society where we don't have privacy and the capacity to collect data on people is unprecedented? So this specific law that the film is concerned with, the Schedule 7, I presume that can only be used in quite specific circumstances, as in like at ports and borders, right? So so this is not something that translates necessarily 
into everyday life or is it like what what happens if you hand your phone over to the police when asked for whatever reason and you think sure I've done nothing wrong here's my phone download everything so schedule seven of the terrorism act only applies at ports and borders having said that it's a power that can be exercised without suspicion so they Mm. do not need any reason to stop you officially Mm. anyone theoretically can be stopped but one thing I will add to that is, so the technologies that we look at closely in the film, the mobile device forensic tools, which mm-hmm. are used to extract data from electronic devices, are very common in policing. And those are used by police forces all over the UK. And as we say in, in the film, in every US state. And so much of the time, the way in which those technologies are being used is people who come into contact with the police for various reasons are asked for their passwords and they give consent. So so a lot of the organisations who are doing work in this area, that's something they highlight as an area of concern because the question is, do people understand what they're consenting to when they consent to a search of their phone? And do they understand how that data is going to be used, how that data is going to be stored so so that's I guess relates to the technologies, not the law, but just to say they are very, very common. I wanted to ask you about how you kind of came to be involved in this sort of area, particularly, because I think a lot of people would think like, oh, this is tech, this is terrorism, this is quite sort of masculine, male-dominated kind of arenas. What drew you to this? My entry point was actually through a short film, film I made. And that film, I found a... a Downing Street press release that named six people as non-violent extremists Mm -hmm. and it was part of the government's promotion of the prevent duty and so I was interested in just in that definition and and what that meant and it was saying that these were the, the kinds of people who should not be allowed to speak publicly at educational institutions so I made a film that was kind of a creative documentary interviewing three of those individuals and then also casting actors to lip sync to their words. So it's kind of a, a, a philosophical film about free speech and many things. But I kept in touch with one of the contributors from that film who actually had a court case against the UK government. His name is Salman Butt. And he won that court case, challenging the naming of him on this press release. Anyway, I was doing some work for Channel 4 News at the time, and I thought maybe we could do a little piece about his court case. And he said, you know, nothing is really happening with my court case, but you should really speak to Mohammed Rabani. He has been charged with a terrorism offence for refusing to hand over his passwords. So that was all I knew at the time. And I, I, I met with Rabani, and I just, I think I just thought that, you know, this was really striking, that this person was being... Mm criminalized for a password and so I felt like it would be a story with wider implications about who has the right to our data and the coercive methods that have that that can be used to obtain it and generally speaking I'm interested in the digital age in how that intersects with our society our relationship to the state as citizens so I felt like it was a story that would get into some of those questions. I mean, there's a lot of questions around this stuff and it's quite, you know, I think it's quite um, timely as well in terms of a lot of freedom of speech things that are going on at the moment. The argument about who does get to speak and what do they get to speak about? Yeah, and I I think that 
what's been what I found really interesting is the way that our relationship to that concept has changed with with the internet, you know, and we're now in a time when we're saying, okay, different people have access to different platforms and these technologies are not neutral. So how do we, it, it's a question and I don't think we have an answer to that yet. You know, how do we kind of maintain democratic integrity and not amplify misinformation while mm. also retaining our right to freedom of speech and things like criticism, criticizing the government. And yeah, it's really difficult. So I wanted to ask you what, is next for you because you talked about criticizing the government and things like that obviously there's some like pretty dodgy stuff going on at the moment in terms of uh, powers that are being sought by government to sort of curb you know protest and and things like that i wondered you know do you have an interest in any of those areas you think you might kind of start looking into those next maybe so i'm looking into a couple of things it's all so early stage so yeah. has it say specifically mm-hmm. um, what it is but generally speaking I am very interested in accountability and you know those kinds of questions and so it's definitely things that I'll be keeping an eye on for sure in terms of what's next for Phantom Parrot we're still excited about reaching audiences we just had our UK premiere at Sheffield Dot Fest last week which was fantastic we had sold out screenings, really engaged questions after. So it's incredible to see the way that people are coming up with some of these questions and wanting to have some of these conversations off the back of the film. So mm-hmm. we're hoping to do a screening tour in the UK and also get the film in cinemas and also eventually broadcast. So if people want to stay up to date with that, you can follow our website, which is www.phantomparrot.com. Very happy to have gotten that d- domain name. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a Twitter, which is at phantom underscore parrot. And do you have like a personal Twitter that you use that people could follow? I do. I do. So on Twitter, I'm at Kate underscore Stonehill. And I will just say, I, I have seen the film... I was lucky enough to see a rough cut of it and then I've seen like the finished version of it as well and it will blow your mind like it really will it's 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 absolutely nuts so yeah big recommend that you all go and watch that Kate thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for having me and a big shout out to my incredible team including Vera <laughs> Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by TikTok sensation, Instagram delight, joy for ears, eyes, mouth and belly, Tat FB, aka the Cake Tunist. Tat, hello. Hello, Mitty. How are you? I'm all right. I am warm. How are you doing? Are you melting like chocolate in a bain-marie? <laughs> nice. I like it. Uh, you've, you've put me at ease there, haven't you, by throwing a baking reference in. <laughs> I'm actually quite temperate. I found something really weird recently. My hands have been freezing even though it's been like the heat wave. So when my hands are warm, I know that I'm properly toasty and it is really hot. So I'm good, actually. Is it like a Raynaud thing? Well, do you know what? I did wonder that, but I don't know if it is. I think I've just got cold hands because don't your hands go kind of funny colours when you've got Raynaud? Yeah, they go blue. Although it can affect people in different ways, apparently. Or maybe it is. Maybe I'll just... Google it. No, I don't want to Google it. <laughs> Anyone who's listening and wondering the state of my hands right now, I'd say clammy is probably the best word to describe them. Clammy. And indeed to yeah, describe yeah. me all over at the moment. 
So, Tat, tell me why you're called the cake tunist. Well, brace yourself. I'm a cartoonist. And then I slipped in deliberately. So it was a deliberate slip into posting my cake baking or baking in general. How long have I been the cake tunist? I've been the cake tunist about just over 18 months. And before I was just posting my cartoons sporadically when you know, when I'd drawn them or when they'd been in something and going, hey, look what I've done. But I also did a lot of baking, but that was kind of private baking. And (laughs) I'd spent four years previously being ruthlessly rejected by the Great British Bake Off. So that's my origin story. It's born out of spite and impotent rage. Um, (laughs) Like every good villain. Exactly, exactly. I'm, you know, I don't have a cape, but I should. I have a cake Hey, there she is, the caked crusader. Yeah. (laughs) So I just thought, okay, this has gone on long enough. I had all these ideas of things, you know, if I was ever to get on the show that I wanted to do. So I just started doing them myself, putting the content out there and baking and trying to be funny at the same time. So that's why I am the cake tunist, because I suppose I was a cartoonist, but I suppose within the context of baking, what it means is it's the joke bit is the tunist bit. So I don't necessarily draw and bake at the same time, but you'll get a cake and you'll get a joke. Yeah. You did mention it there, and I know you you don't really like to talk about what was clearly quite a difficult journey for you, but can you tell us a little bit more about not being on Bake Off? (laughs) I know, I don't go on about it, do I? (laughs) Not being on Bake Off. Well, I mean, it is a defining moment in my life because you know I would never have thought that I could stand in front of a camera and make a complete tool of myself but it is all born out of the process of thinking oh I'd really love to be on my favorite tv show and hey I'm good at baking um so why don't I have a go and I'll just apply once because you know I've got other things going on in my life then when I got rejected the first time, what I forgot about myself is that actually I'm really good at rejection because I've been a creative my whole professional career right. and that's all part of the job, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you dust yourself off and you pick yourself up and you go, right, let's let's have another go next year. So I just kept going and it sort of fueled all the ideas for the things I wanted to do should I ever get on Bake Off. And the very fact that I never managed it is now sort of irrelevant because it crystallized the idea of what I wanted to do yeah so I am very thankful for it really you got pretty far down the audition process right yeah uh, one time I got sort of to the last stage so I, I did the final audition but I just didn't make the cut at the end so yeah other years I was just completely ignored which is worse really isn't it is it worse all rejection sucks so yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah I mean, and I don't understand why they rejected you. Obviously, I'm very pleased it led to you setting up this online community as the Cake Tunist. And as you said, you did that 18 months ago and your first videos are kind of explaining the five stages of Bake Off grief. And (laughs) they're very, very funny. What was the response when you did that? Well, the whole reason that I decided I would talk about it is when I was rejected all those times, because secrecy is such a big part of the process. If you're serious about it, you cannot tell anyone. You like you might tell your partner and your children if they're old enough to understand it and a couple of friends. You cannot tell anyone. 
So when you're rejected, you know, you want to go to people and go, I've just been through this incredibly stressful experience here. The audition process is very long, drawn out and stressful and you're all consumed by it. And you just kind of want to go to other people who've been through it or to tell your friends, but there's no one you can share it with. You can do, but I think if you're serious about doing it next year, you have to keep quiet because you've got to keep your powder dry. So... I would sort of go online when I'd been rejected and just see, is anyone talking about what they've just been through? Because I know there'll be thousands of people in the same position course, that yeah. I've just found myself in. And there was no one there. And I just thought, well, OK, you know, if when I'm ready to talk about this, I think I might find other people who are in the similar position. And because it also served the purpose that by talking about it in public, I would then, if they saw that I was talking in public, they wouldn't touch me with a barge bowl. And therefore... I couldn't then apply again because I really think I needed some way to say, listen, mate, you've got to stop this. <laughs> They're just not that into you. So when I when I did start talking about it, I was kind of set myself up as I made an idiot of myself. I've done this. You know, if anyone else wants to see someone in the same position as them or come and talk to me or send me a message, whatever, I'm here. I'm your point of contact. And I've met so many amazing people who we share that kind of that thread of just how traumatic stroke amazing and exciting it can be. So, I mean, from that point of view, it works. And I just sort of that's why I leave the videos out there. And because I'm I know at some point, usually in the spring, when you've just found out you've not made it someone else will be going, oh, bake off audition, oh, you know, and typing in the hashtag and hoping that they'll find someone else who's um, just been through what they've been through. It's mad to me because you seem like you'd be absolutely perfect for it. And uh, I'm not trying to rub salt in the, in the wound, although it feels like your wound is healed and I'm very, very <laughs> pleased about that. But given that you started this 18 months ago and you post really, really regularly, you must now be at the stage where people are going to you, oh my God, you should totally go on bake off. And the cycle starts again, right? Yeah, I think I think I was because you never know if the algorithm will show people your video is in order. So you know you could literally have just posted I've just not got on Bake Off, and then someone will see a cake video and they go, yeah, "You should go on Bake Off." <laughs> in fact, one of my videos is about that. It's about someone saying you should go on Bake Off, and me just smashing a cake into their face because, like, <laughs> it's it's you know it's said as a compliment, isn't it? But yeah. you just don't know what that person is dealing with currently inside their head. <laughs> I've got to say that is one of the most upsetting things about your channel, actually. That does look like there's quite a lot of wasted, delicious cake because they're smashing and smearing and <laughs> rubbing <laughs> oh, it on Oh, it doesn't your get face. wasted, is okay. it? <laughs> you, very pleased I, about this. I have, uh, my, my family are very, they don't eat anything that's been directly put on my face. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they... they... <laughs> They'll eat anything that's left over. Nothing goes to waste. <laughs> now I've got like this mental image of you as some sort of weird sort of geisha, you know, when they lay down and they put the food on them and people come and eat it off them and that's just how your family has dinner. I don't know. Well, I might suggest that. It's worth a try. It's worth a try. I don't think I've run out of ways to embarrass my son, so I think that <laughs> might be a good one. Okay, this question probably says more about me, old lady time here, than you, but you are pretty darn massive on TikTok. How did you get into that? I started the TikTok account at the same point I, on Instagram, became the Cake Tunist. I so obviously started out with zero followers. I knew that I could post the same content on Instagram as TikTok, so I didn't do anything different on TikTok. 
I've got to be honest, it was absolutely terrifying. Like when you first set up a TikTok account, the algorithm, I don't think it assumes it knows who you are as a person, but it just assumes you want to see jiggling young women. Right. So okay. You think that's just the general societal assumption, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what you want, but while I'm figuring it out, have a look at this. So, you know, you're sort of going, oh my God, what is this place? It becomes a much safer space when you find your tribe. So, you know, actually middle-aged women are legion on there. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, maybe I need to brave it. Yeah, some people say, oh, you know, maybe I should be doing TikToks. And I say, well, you know, go and have a look at it. But there's absolutely no need to because you can probably get most of the stuff on Instagram if you want to. It just you get it on Instagram about two to three weeks later. <laughs> I mean, that, that's it tends, fine it with takes me. a while to filter through. I'm never going to yeah, be zeitgeist. Exactly. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not bothered about the zeitgeist, you're cool. So basically, I was just throwing content out into the void, but I was doing it regularly enough that very, very slowly people found me and I sort of found enough people I wanted to follow. So I was comfortable on the platform sort of interacting with it and trying to understand it. But I didn't do anything specifically for TikTok. I was just like, this is my mouthpiece. That's the way I'm going to use it. I'm not going to do specific things for TikTok. Because if I tried that, then one, it wouldn't work. And and two, you know, I'd just constantly be chasing my tail. And, you know, I've got so many ideas, I'm never going to lack content. So I just threw it out and slowly it picks up. And how are the jiggling young women? Well, I don't see them anymore. And maybe sometimes I miss them. I just could always go and look for them if I wanted to. <laughs> I don't think you'd have to look very far, if I'm honest with you. No. <laughs> no. You're only about two clicks away. The success of the cake tunist and the joy of the cake tunist is, as you put it, dry sense of humour, moist sense of cake, lovely stuff. But yeah. your baking, you are clearly very, very good at it. So I've got a couple of baking questions for you. How much of baking is science and how much is art? Okay, I love this question. I don't think I've got a concise answer because, of course, it's science. But you can interpret that in so many ways. So you can make a sponge cake with varying degrees of the ingredients within, you know, the science that you have. uh, The raising agent is going to cause, you know, carbon I'm going to say, I'm going to say the science and it's going to be wrong, but it's going to cause the gas when either the heat or the acid hits the alkali and it's going to floof that up. But within that, I mean, that's the science in cooking as well. So within the science of baking, there is art. Like you can, you, you can interpret that the science and the chemical reactions that are occurring within it to make art. That's what I like to say, because it's like, I really, really hate it. Like, oh, of course, cooking's an art. And baking's a science. Just where I fuck you. No, it's not. I'm an artist and I'm baking. <laughs> Absolutely. My mate Tina always said the answer to this question was to make it with love. But I wondered if there was a trick to a perfect cake. Um, I disagree with the love thing. <laughs> <laughs> spite. Put, put a load because of spite in it. <laughs> often, often spite, um, resentment, anger, um, <laughs> it all goes in. But then maybe I'm just quite a bitter person. <laughs> the secret to a good cake. Was that your question? Sorry. Yeah. Well, the trick, because if it's a secret, then you don't have to tell me. But if it's oh, a yeah, trick, no you secret. can share it. Or if there is, I'll share it with you. I would say don't actually bake it in a very hot oven. So a lot of recipes will say 175 
actually you could probably bake it at 160 to 150 degrees Celsius, but just for slightly longer. And actually that will probably keep your cake moister, I would say. And I've thought of another thing then, but I can't think what it was. It's gone. <laughs> Do you think talking about baking and food is the only time a person should use the word moist? I don't know. A moist towelette's a lovely comic phrase, isn't it? <laughs> I quite like the word moist because people go... Ugh. I don't understand why people have such a problem with it because I, I know some people are triggered in the modern parlance by the word moist. You know, I like to be inclusive and I don't like to, you know, upset anyone. So I have thought, you know, OK, if I'm going to just... This cake is moist. There's no getting around it. What do I say? Do If people don't like moist, do I say it's tender? Well, it's not tender, is it? Because no. tender is different to moist. Moist means containing moisture. And that's kind of, for most cakes, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah. And damp, I guess. But damp's more like lemon drizzle damp. when you've made it like yeah. wetter, I think. Yeah. 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 I always think of my Jenna when I think of the word damp. She likes a damp crumb, doesn't she? And it's, she's doing all right. So, you know, maybe it's the way she, She's done all right. She's done all right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should say it more. It could be your USP. The moist cake tunist. <laughs> Just putting that, you don't need ideas for content, but that one's yours if you want it. It's yours. Yeah. A friend of ours once made another friend a cake. She'd been away, she was coming back, and she thought, let's make her a cake, that'll be lovely. And she forgot to put eggs in it. Then halfway through, remembered she'd forgotten to put eggs in it, took it out, added the eggs. It didn't go well. It was an absolute fail. Do you have a lot of fails still or are you at the stage where it always goes very smoothly and moistly? No, no. I would say my baking is experimental. So what you see on screen is the result of me creating many, 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 many disasters, particularly because, you know, if I've if I've worked out a recipe and I'm happy with it, I very you know, I don't then go, right, there's my cake recipe, I'm gonna stick to that. Because I'll then have another idea and I'll think, Oh, what if you did this? What if you did that? Or, hey, eggs are expensive, let's try and do it vegan or egg-free. And so I have had so many cakes that I've thrown out into the garden and think, well, the wood pigeons can do that, and even they've left it. So, <laughs> no, there is, a, <laughs> there is a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of things that don't go to plan. Um, my freezer's full of things that I think, well, it's wasteful to throw that away. I'm sure I'll work out a way of making a disaster trifle and I'll crumble that in or something like that. I like the idea of a disaster trifle. That's definitely one that you would yeah. eat with your hands while crying, I think. <laughs> yes, for sure. I've needed a disaster trifle quite a lot in my life. I'm excited about it. <laughs> okay, I am feeling a little bit mean, particularly as you, you know, you love the spite, the resentment and the anger. So I'm sorry, but I am going to ask you if you could only make one cake slash sweet bake for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh my God, that is mean. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Would you rather I ask you to pick your favourite child? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> what I really love making... Do you know what? I'm, I haven't made it for ages, but if I had to make it... No, I, I am going to make it, actually, because I'm going to do a, a recipe where you can do it in the microwave, and that's um, lemon shortbread bars. So you, you've got, like, shortbread, and then you're essentially baking a lemon curd on the top. So I think, like, anything lemony and buttery... They're the two things that I will always go, yeah, uh -huh. I'll have that. Yeah. And a follow-up question, how much would it cost for you to post that to me? <laughs> I'll send you one for free, but that's just to get you hooked and then it'll be probably some sort of 
Amazon style Prime subscription. <laughs> you could totally do a subscription. Yeah. And I guess the other side of what you do, the day job, as you call it, is the cartoons. How are the cartoons going? Well, actually, in the last six months, I've been sort of trying to squish the cartoons and the cake together in a sort of a meaningful way. Um, so I've been working on a book idea that is basically a sort of a, a illustrated cartoon baking book that doesn't have the sort of the end line where, you know, someone wants to publish it. But that is the project that I'm currently working on. So I'm sort of doing less gag cartooning or sort of, you know, short story writing and drawing. I'm now focusing on bringing it all together in a way that sort of almost justifies my last 18 months of setting up this persona and this, you know, online presence. So hopefully something comes of that. I know that, you know, there are people who like what I do. So hopefully we can push it in the right direction. There are loads of people who like what you do. So, you know, thank you, Baker. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's a very exciting thing for the pipeline. And so where can people follow you for the excellent recipes and the lol out louds, please? I am on TikTok. And Instagram and newly on Facebook, retro. Um, and I'm, you just find me at the Cake Toonist. So the Cake Toonist. I'm the same across the board. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Tat. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week features Julie Walters doing a quite prescient Idris Elba as Luther impersonation that made me fear for her knees? <laughs> this week we watched Educating Rita, a non-romantic comedy love story between a super smart hairdresser and an alcoholic university lecturer released in cinemas in the UK this month in 1983. Based on a semi-autobiographical stage play of the same name by Willie Russell, it's directed by Lewis Gilbert, who was also responsible for another 80s runaway success about a woman wanting to change her life. Was it Shirley Valentine? It is Shirley Valentine, Also Willie Russell? Because, yes, Educating Rita was successful by a whole load of metrics. It made $14.6 million at the box office. It got largely positive reviews, although Christ knows what Roger Ebert was watching <laughs> because it wasn't the I know, it had a cockney in it. <laughs> the end result is 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. And in terms of silverware, Educating Rita took the best film BAFTA. Michael Caine and Julie Walters both won BAFTA and Golden Globe Awards for Best Actor and Best Actress. And Caine, Walters and Russell also received Oscar nominations. Filmed in Dublin and making use of lovely Trinity College. Oh, it's so beautiful. Isn't it just? It was Walter's first film, but despite having been in the stage play and being nominated for an Olivier, she wasn't everybody's first choice. What? Gilbert said when he was attempting to raise funding for the film, Columbia Pictures wanted Dolly Parton for the role of Rita. <laughs> now, I won't have a bad word said against Dolly. Dolly, but wowzers. <laughs> I know, I really want to hear her Liverpudlian accent. And raising the £4 million budget remained a struggle, which may explain why you don't recognise that song they're singing in the pub or the song in the club. They both only exist in this film. And explain why at the wedding they are dancing to what appears to be on hold music. (laughs) So, Julie Walters' first film, as for Kane, in some ways it was his last film. As, according to the actor himself, 
it was the last good film he made before mentally checking out of his career. Kowalsis. The incredible thing about this statement is that post-educating Rita, Kane's been nominated for three more Oscars, one, two, starred in a franchise that made two billion at the box office and appeared in what is often ranked as one of the best films of the 21st century, Children of Men. Imagine what would have happened were he trying. <laughs> he is so great in Children of Men. He is so great. Let's have a bit of plot. In an unnamed town, working class woman Susan is in her mid-twenties and working as a hairdresser. She's married to a man who'd like nothing more for than her to stop having dreams and start having babies. Oh. But instead... Using a new name, Rita, she enrols for an OU course. She's assigned a lecturer at a nearby university, Frank, who, despite looking like the words open university have become flesh, <laughs> isn't so keen on the arrangement. He's a divorced alcoholic and wannabe poet in a relationship he's so checked out of, he fails to notice she's having the world's most obvious affair with his boss, <laughs> played by Mr Judy Dench, Michael Williams. That is a... Gorgeous little ongoing joke, that one. But Frank soon realises that Rita is very smart, albeit in a totally different way to most of the students and academics he encounters, leaving him with a dilemma. In order to get her through a degree, he has to smooth down her rough edges. But in doing so, he'll destroy exactly what it is that makes Rita so engaging in the first place. So, Mickey, had you seen this before? I am of Scouse heritage and Willie Russell was very well loved in our house while I was growing up. So Shirley Valentine and Educating Rita were basically on constant rotation with Arthur starring Dudley Moore in there for a little bit of uh, <laughs> saucy time for my mum, I think. But yeah, non-Scouse action. But yeah, I've seen it quite a few times, but not for a long time. What about you? Yeah, that would be the same with me. I can actually remember being at my aunt and uncle's house and my uncle bringing this home from the video shop and there actually being some level of excitement. Mm. It was considered a really famous film. Yeah. I've seen it a lot. That said, I probably hadn't seen it for maybe 20 years. Yeah, same. I do have a picture. I have a lot of pictures in my spare room slash office of films and one of them is Julie Walters and Michael Caine in Educating Rita. Where in location is it with regards to the, my favourite one of the Muppets? <laughs> The Muppets is... The, I don't know what this says. The Muppets is directly over the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and as you'll see behind me, the Wild Bunch is behind me on my desk. That tells you everything you need to know about Anna, everyone. So do you remember liking it? Yes. And potentially oddly, given how young I was when I watched it, really liking it, because it's very stagey. It is a stage play, and I think even in its film, guys, it still reads very like, this is a play. You know, people make speeches. And that's the way Willie Russell writes. But yeah, I really liked it. I really liked it. I love how engaging the central characters are. Just a note on Julie Walters' Scouse accent, which is, I reckon, like 85% brilliant. And then occasionally she remembers she's from Birmingham and she can't do anything about it. <laughs> I remember liking this when I was young. In fact, I can remember finding that when Kane is really drunk and falls off the stage. Funny. I remember finding that... Funny, which is mad, yeah. <laughs> given my personal history with alcohol. But I remember thinking it was really funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember finding that bit very funny. I still did laugh. I don't think it's because Kane does it very, very well. Yeah. But it was much more tragic watching it this time. 
And I think the other reason that I really liked it, even as a youngin, was it's not a romance. Like, he clearly falls no. in love with Rita, but doesn't want her to change. Her husband doesn't want her to change. There's all these men who don't want her to change. And she doesn't give a shit about any of them, really. She's like, I'm going to be me. And I love that it's it's not even unrequited, though, because he never really acts on it. He just gets grumpy, I guess. This film is me all over. I mean, it's not a romantic story. It is about people who just love each other for a different mm. reason. It's got class politics and all of that. So in many ways, before I realised that that's what I liked in a film, I would only have been 12, something like that, yeah. maybe when I saw this, when it came out on video. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it spoke to us. We both grew up, you know, in, in working class households and it told us that we could do what we wanted to. Yeah, and I have to say, I grew up in a house where you sometimes came home and my dad had decided to knock a wall through. That actually happened <laughs> quite a lot in our house. That said, give him his due, my dad believed that everyone should get an education. There was absolutely no way he thought women should have babies and, and not go to university. It probably felt perfectly normal to me. <laughs> Are we watching this documentary again? What? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Her her dad is actually the, the most awful character in it, I think. Yeah. I hated it. I hissed at the screen this time. Should we stop and just talk about Julie Waters for a bit? Because she started off in drama, right? So she starts off in the theatre at the Everyman. And then she became largely known for her work with Victoria mm. Woods. So in a lot of ways, everyone forgot that Julie Waters was a really great drama yeah. actress. But she can do it all. She is unbelievably impressive. She's wonderful. Yeah, she's such an engaging screen presence, isn't she? She doesn't oversell. It'd be so easy to oversell what could be a caricature rather than a character, I think. Yeah. But absolute testament to Russell's writing and to Walter's in particular for just getting across Rita's personality so beautiful, getting across her wants and desires without making it feel cliched. It's it's so good. Mm. Such a wonderful performance. I, I read an interview with Willie Russell that they did because uh, there was a 40th anniversary tour in 2020. And I don't think it happened. I read an interview that was coming up in advance of it mm-hmm. with Willie Russell and he said that it's, uh, it is semi-autobiographical and he didn't realise it was semi-autobiographical until later when he looked back because he was like, I wrote myself basically as a woman and that obscured it for me. Right. But yeah, just to be clear, he is Rita in this. The writer is Rita. Yeah. I think Willie Russell, I mean, and it is on the strength of those two films, it's very, very good at writing women, which yeah. is not as common as it should be very good at writing women with inner lives that they Mm. are rediscovering. Shirley Valentine, be interested to revisit that. But there are are so many lines that I think of from Shirley Valentine that still make me laugh when I think of them. Jesus, Michael Caine gets loads of them and Michael Caine's delivery is fucking extraordinary. The bit where um, Rita's asking him about his partner, his girlfriend, the woman he lives with, they don't really, he doesn't really give it a, a title. Yeah. And she says, don't you like her? And he says, oh, I like her enormously. It's myself I'm not too fond of. (laughs) (laughs) Playing into the ongoing on-the-phone joke. (laughs) When Michael Williams' character says to him, I can't even remember what he says now, but he says when he's leaving his office and he says something about, oh, I think I'm going to sort this out. And he says, well, that would help with my phone bill enormously. Thank you, (laughs) So many really funny lines. And again, I I think... Given that it was a stage play and sometimes when these things do transfer to the big screen, they lose a bit by still feeling stagey. And I do think this Mm. still feels stagey, but it 
is not overwritten. Again, absolute testament to Russell's character and the edits it must have done bringing it from the theatre to the screen. Yeah. But it is just wonderful. There's a little bit of speechifying occasionally, but it's never overdone. It never goes on too long. You're never too far from something that's going to make you laugh, which makes the characters so engaging. And that final scene is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, agreed. Just going back briefly to what you said, the play is just set in one room. Mm. So everything that's outside of that, you know, is new. And I think it works in varying degrees well. I think some bits just work absolutely brilliantly, like when she's on the bus and she starts talking to that student only because she wants to be able to tell him that she is also a student. And then when she does it, she's really... Proud of herself and rightly so. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. I just did a face that doesn't work for a podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure much of the stuff with Maureen Lippman works mm. exactly for me. But the stuff like like an extra scene that is clearly not in the play, because as you say, it's a two-hander, is the one in the pub. They're all singing the same song. They're all just singing along. She hasn't wanted to go. She doesn't want to be there. And she looks at her mum, and her mum is the only other person not singing, and her mum is actually crying. And she says, Mother, why are you crying? And she just says, aren't there better songs to sing? And that actually just sums up the whole of Educating Rita, right? Those bridesmaids' dresses were <laughs> so amazing because they look almost exactly like the one bridesmaid's dress that I had to wear. As in, it was just like full length, but basically just one utterly unembellished piece of fabric that went from your like, neck Polyester. to the Polyester. They, they looked hot. <laughs> With a couple of bits of lace like someone had sewn onto them. Oh my God, mine was peach it was awful yeah the little touches like that that you wouldn't see in the play obviously also chef's kiss the beige buffet at that wedding i was like oh yeah yeah, i had one of them a couple of weeks ago lovely stuff absolutely classic uh liverpudlian wedding there there is a bit where i just feel like they're saying like a lot of people just seem to think that northerners can't be smart and i know it's a class politics thing obviously i know it's class politics but it's very much like she gets wrecked because she's northern a lot She's northern. Mm. She's not. Well, you know, and I was like, hang on, come on, fight and talk. Yeah. Sticking with the class politics, Mick. I mean, obviously, they were going to retour this. And not just because there's an anniversary, but because a lot of the topics in this are still relevant. I think it's incredibly relevant. Social mobility and the pressure of women to have. I mean, that in itself in the last couple of months has become like a huge talking point. With the interview I did with Caroline Lee about prize women, you know, we are, women are slowly being put under pressure to not do what you and I have done, which is not have children. Uh So all of it seems really relevant. And I'd also say the fact that men underestimate and undermine women, that's Mm. not moved on at all. The men who love Rita, the men who love Susan, one loves Susan, her husband loves Susan, but he wants her to be who he wants her to be. And then she meets Frank, who is willing to open her mind and and educate Rita. But he doesn't want her to be who she wants to be. He also wants her to be who he wants her to be. All of these men trying to put her in a box instead of letting her discover herself, which is what she wants to do. Yeah, you know, in many ways, Rita stands for the working class. And he stands for the middle class and how, I mean, Guardian readers are like desperately worried about the poor until they do something that they don't like, like, you know, vote for Brexit or something. Mm -hmm. And then then the attitude changes. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That is something that is reflected. I think to be fair to Frank, he understands academia and he understands how cookie cutter a lot of academia is. I think 
part of the reason he want, doesn't want Rita to change is not just because of his personal feelings about Rita, but because he thinks that academia needs a breath of fresh air and she is a breath of fresh air. And she thinks outside the box and he thinks that there should be more thinking outside the box in his world. But that said, he's a raging alcoholic, so what does he know? And also that <laughs> won't let her do what she really wants to do, which is pass the exam. That's why she's gone mm. to him. So in the end, even though there is like a, a glimmer of worth in what Frank might be wanting for her, it's not his choice. It's Rita's choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Mickey, two questions here. Number one, if it started touring again, would you want to go and see Educating Rita? Number two, Educating Rita, the film, rated or dated? Yeah, I think I'd be well up for going and seeing it as a stage play. I think that would be really interesting. And as for Educating Rita, the 1983 film, Rated or dated? I mean, a woman choosing to be on her own seems practically futuristic, doesn't it? I feel like we've not really got there. So, yeah, it's it's a big rated. I still think it speaks really loudly and eloquently to stuff going on today, despite the uh, background on whole synth music that marks it as the 80s. (laughs) Yes, I would absolutely go and see it as a stage play. And, yeah, in a world where... 40 years later, social mobility is actually getting harder. Mm. Yeah, absolutely rated. Good choice. I really enjoyed watching it again as well, because as well as it being relevant, it is utterly charming. It's utterly charming. Yeah. I think it might be, along with Children of Men and The Swarm, my favourite <laughs> Michael Caine. Yeah, you threw in the be best the one at the end me. there. Yeah. Shout African beefbacks at me. Can I just note, Mickey, that was made before he checked out, quite clearly. I mean, I'm glad you did remind me, Hannah, but he's trying very hard in the swarm, and that is clear to anyone with (laughs) eyes and ears. (laughs) What are we watching next? Oh, I have no idea. It's Jen's choice, and listeners, you might have noticed that apart from her interview, Jen's not been on the pod this week because she is very poorly. So we don't know, but we'll let you know on the old Twitter. Get well soon, Jen. Yeah, I can give you a heads up for the week after, which is my pick, and we're going to be watching Christmas film, Die Hard. Hey, hark at me shouting, get well soon, Jen, because I, I think that when she's really, really poorly and trying to raise a child, she's going to find herself to listen to the podcast. <laughs> it's because we got to make that choice about not having children, Hannah. Standard issue for all women.